For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. Mediators World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana. This is Cal's Week in Review with Ryan Cal Callahan. Now, here's Cal. Hit by an Angel, the new spin-off reality show out of Hay River Northwest Territories. This one features a man hitting a grizzly bear with a stone angel statue while it attacks a young woman. Hopefully, Hit by an Angel will be limited to just the one episode, as its precursor, Hit by a Boot, didn't work out very well. According to Northwest Territories News North, Roy Helmer was awoken early in the AM on October 16th by his common-law partner Shelley Wood, who had been up late knitting. Her knitting was interrupted by the commotion of an ongoing bear attack happening in front of the steps of their home. Shelly reportedly hit the bear repeatedly with a boot. Way to go, Shelly. Unfortunately, the boot had no effect, which is when she went back into the couple's home to wake up Roy, who is apparently a deep sleeper. Roy, not to be outdone by Shelly, also ran directly to the bear and the screaming woman. As reported by NNSN, Roy is quoted, So I ran down. I was just in my shorts. I threw a boot, and that didn't do a damn thing. He just kept on going. I'm going to pause here and wonder, did Roy grab the mate to Shelly's boot, or did he go with uh, perhaps a larger caliber of boot? Anyway, Roy said, So I come back up the steps, and I have some cement statues, and I grab the cement statue, and I run over there, and I nailed it with that. I just threw it as hard as I could. Now that the bear had been hit by an angel, it paused its mauling long enough to give Roy the opportunity to drag the young woman, the bear's victim, up his steps and into their home to safety. 
The young woman was prepped by local first responders and flown to Edmonton for further treatment. Her condition was described as serious. For reference, Hay River Northwest Territories is located a long way from major medical services. Aside from that, it would take you almost seven hours of driving and two ferry crossings to get from Hay River to the nearest McDonald's, which is located in Yellowknife. If, you know, you consider McDonald's a marker of civilization. The trip to Edmonton, which is where the young woman was flown, is about a two-hour flight south. Although the Hay River region has been in use by First Nations people for over 7,000 years, it wasn't connected by any type of road to southern Canada until 1948. Hay River authorities warned residents to be vigilant for bears, as they did kill a bear near the scene of the attack, but they are, as of now anyway, unsure if it was the same bear. You know, because there's a lot of bears in the neighborhood. As we move closer to winter, food sources start to dwindle, the bears that are not hibernating already are in need of additional calories in order to survive the winter, a condition known as hyperphagia. An intense hunger can cause incidents like this one. There have only been nine reported bear attacks in the Northwest Territories in the last 20 years. Out of those reported attacks, four have been fatal, five non. Important to note that the NWT is a gigantic swath of land and the number of bear attacks versus reported bear attacks may be quite different. And, according to most sources, as in every source other than this particular story, uh, bear spray is going to be your best bet in a situation where an 18-inch cement angel statue isn't handy. (laughs) This week, we've got the crime desk, mean forked horns, furry caterpillars, and so much more. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And, as you know, my week and this podcast is brought to you by the good folks at Steel Power Equipment. Steel, makers of the world's finest chainsaws. This weekend was blowing cold snow, and a chainsaw was not used. But I did use a set of steel pruning shears to remove a few legs and wings from Snort, the Little Yellow Lab's first pheasants. Pretty awesome. Gang, I gotta tell you, this uh, just about pheasant tall, five and a half month old, 39 pound female lab did a very impressive job. Admittedly, it took her a while to really work the cover. She didn't just dive into the thick stuff. She had to be kind of inspired to it, you could say. She caught the scent of a few hen pheasants on the edges of the cover. She showed her excitement through body language we always refer to as getting birdie as in you know she goes from excited to really excited from curious to determined the scent would then end at a bird and as it flew away with no shooting she would uh, walk a tight circle and get back at it about halfway through all the pheasant cover we jumped our first rooster and got our first retrieve the bird flushed a little wild but offered a good shot After a little bit more direction than you would, you know, typically be given a veteran hunting dog, Snort had the bird. Then after that, she hunted harder and started working the cover harder. The birds responded to this by running faster and, to my dismay, flying way out ahead of shooting range. Some of the birds even flew onto the adjacent property for which we had no permission. This is pheasant hunting. And nothing new, but repetition is so important 
for the learning of a puppy that I got to tell you, my heart just ached a little bit with each bird that flew that fence. The one bird would have been a win. But if we could get a couple more opportunities at least, that extra bit of repetition, that very same day, the same outing, would leave that much more of an imprint on Snort. So we transitioned our tactic to a very common one of posting one hunter as a blocker and Snort and I would be the drivers or flushers. At this point, we had only about a third of the cover left to hunt, roughly two quarter mile walks, let's say. The hope with this strategy is that the birds that are running well out in front of the dog and gun will feel the presence of the blocker and stop, or keg up, as we like to say, instead of continuing to vacate the county. The flusher gets within responsible range of the blocker, and both parties get shot opportunities as the dog flushes birds or the birds just get nervous and fly on their own. That's the ideal scenario. We worked the first patch of cover down to the blocker, and although birds flushed, no shots were made, with the exception of one rooster that double-backed and flushed directly in front of me, and of course I missed. I was behind him on the second shot, just like I was on the first shot. And you could say it was a gimme type of scenario, Uh, I gotta tell you, nothing feels worse than missing over a puppy. The second patch of cover, the birds now educated to our presence, held very tight, but Snort broke out her previously undiscovered A-game, and just like she's been doing on songbirds, like western meadowlarks and black-capped chickadees, she had her nose on a lot of pheasant butts. It was really something to see. Really, really cool. She made a couple of great retrieves and even hunted down and retrieved a crippled bird in thick cover in what I would call a veteran's pace. That old ditch chicken is shockingly white meat in my fridge. A couple in the brine for slow roasting. I gotta tell you, I used to hate cooking pheasants because I didn't have the patience to treat them right. I consistently dried them out. Now, however, it is a real treat. I typically just do a water and salt brine, let them relax for a full 24, ideally 48 to 72 hours. The birds that aren't fully plucked, I make a very nice piccata out of them, and it is better than any darn chicken you're going to buy. Can't wait until next weekend. Moving on to the how do it work desk. The pus moth caterpillar has been showing up out of its normal range and educating the residents of eastern Virginia. The pus moth caterpillar is possibly North America's most toxic caterpillar, and its sting, which comes from toxin-filled spines inside the tiny hairs that cover the caterpillar, is not pleasant. And when I say the hairs cover the caterpillar, I do mean from end to end and thick. In fact, one article described the pus moth as the, quote, toxic toupee. And just like the toupees misguided humans wear to cover their bald spots, you don't want to touch this either. Sure, you may stare longer than you feel is appropriate, trying to make sure you've actually seen what, you know, you have seen. But what would cause someone to reach out and pet this is a mystery. How do it work? Water, fire, air, and dirt. Magnets, how do they work? Anyway, 
According to the Merck Manual, the trusted provider of medical information since 1899, envenomation causes intense throbbing pain, burning, and a rash with erythematous spots, which are itchy or painful pink to red and commonly circular. More susceptible patients can experience swelling, nausea, abdominal pain, headache, lymphadenopathy, the sudden swelling of the lymph nodes, lymphadenitis, shock, and respiratory distress. Wound pain usually subsides within an hour, and the erythematous spots disappear in a day. If, for whatever reason, you reach out and touch the toupee, it would be a good idea to take tape and repeatedly stick it over the contact area to remove any hairs that you missed. The pus moth caterpillar produces two rounds of offspring, one in the spring and one in the fall. They are primarily found in the southeastern U.S. These encounters in Virginia are way out of the ordinary, and likely so are the people who voluntarily touch these things. Suffice it to say, if you pet the toupee, Well, in Whoville, they say. You'll pay, but only for a day. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it, and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Moving on to the North Dakota desk. You know, North Dakota, that state that is between Montana and Minnesota. That's likely where the Montanans will move now that this state is nearing big city COVID refugee capacity. 
North Dakota holds Guinness records for honey production, french fry and pancake feeds, as well as simultaneous snow angel making. And, if you're a fan of the classic Coen Brothers movie Fargo, the wood chipper the big fella was putting the little fella into at the end, that same wood chipper is on display at the Fargo-Moorhead Visitor Center. You bet ya. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Another fun fact about Fargo, Marge, the central heroine and police officer, played by Frances McDormand, her husband, Norm Gunderson, played by John Carroll Lynch, was working on a duck painting submission for a stamp in the movie. Not the federal duck stamp, but a three-cent stamp. Don't you know? Yeah, is that useful to you? Oh, you betcha, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, North Dakota is also a great state to hunt in, typically. This year, in a move I have never in memory seen, North Dakota Game and Fish is offering refunds to 9,000 tag holders due to an outbreak of epizootic hemorrhagic disease, or EHD. North Dakota Game and Fish is asking tag holders to inquire as to deer die-offs and numbers in the areas they intend to hunt before taking the refund, as deer numbers in certain areas are unaffected and would benefit from hunter harvest. EHD is caused by outbreaks of the culicoidus midge, a gnat amongst the biting gnats that are commonly referred to as a noceum. Wet springs that leave large still bodies of water into the typically dry months create prime breeding grounds for the midge, and they will continue to breed until freezing temperatures arrive. The biting midge will pick up the EHD virus through an infected host, then transmit that virus to the deer by biting it. White-tailed deer are the most susceptible to EHD, although antelope and mule deer can be affected as well. Whitetail are more susceptible due primarily to habitat preference. Antelope and mule deer are, you know, less known to hang out in midge territory. According to Cornell University, the symptoms associated with EHD are fever. The virus damages the endothelium, or the lining of the blood vessels, causing small hemorrhages over the body. Hemorrhage of the heart and lungs can result in respiratory distress. There may be dental pad erosion or tongue ulcers, as well as bloody discharge from the nasal cavity. Ulcers of the stomach, rumen, and omassum may also be present. EHD and BT, or blue tongue, are commonly confused for each other. Blue tongue, or BT, is the rarer of the two. However, the symptoms for blue tongue are a bit nastier than EHD. It can affect domestic livestock, Sheep are the most susceptible, according to Purdue University. Both EHD and blue tongue result in dead deer and dead deer fast. According to the Bismarck Tribune, the last time this happened was in 2011. North Dakota Game and Fish offered refunds to 13,000 deer hunters. Only about 300 hunters took the refund. I have two personal experiences with EHD. One, I got permission to hunt a property for pheasants, not too far outside of Red Lodge, Montana, and while walking a fence line, I got no pheasants, but I did hang up at least a dozen whitetail bucks on that fence. All dead from EHD, I was told. A few years later, I had a mule deer tag and was hunting a bachelor group of bucks in eastern Montana. This was the first week of archery season. There were eight bucks in the group, and I watched all eight of those bucks die, and not by my arrow but by EHD over the course of that week. It is nasty stuff to be around. 
I find this article interesting as it highlights an interesting kind of game management tactic, if you think about it. North Dakota Game and Fish isn't closing the deer season or closing deer hunting in the units affected by EHD. They are only offering hunters the choice of voluntarily surrendering your deer tag in exchange for your cash back. Chances are the zone that you're wanting to hunt isn't going to be that great, and the deer can use a break, so let's give you your cash back. It is likely as not that the random draw of having a high mortality disease outbreak has consumed a large portion of the hunter harvest, so let's remove the hunters. But let's still give the hunters a chance to make the decision. It gives you a little insight as to how difficult game management is. Biologists look at past and current population data to determine what type of harvest is needed in a given area. They subtract from that vehicle mortality, wound loss, natural death, and come up with a number of how many tags we are willing to issue for that zone. Then, old mama nature steps in with the HD. This may be a good year to hang on to that deer tag. Continue to hunt, but really set your bar high. Plan on eating that tag unless the impossible happens and Mr. Big steps out. But keep in mind, the deer that are left in those EHD-affected areas may have the genes you want to have around for the next time EHD comes around. Moving on to the anthropology desk. This one, referencing a recent article in Hist H.O. titled, Ancient Canadian Settlement Older Than the Pyramids. First, why are we always comparing things to the pyramids? Yes, they're big and have lasted a long time. But what are they really doing for us? You built a big, not all that attractive house, designed in the vain attempt to take your riches to the afterlife, and we all have to look at it. On top of that, you're gone, and the place is crumbled and looks like hell. Why don't we reference the folks that had a different mindset? In other words, there were plenty of people that probably thought about building pyramids, but also thought, you know what? You can get a lot of good hunting and fishing and kayaking in, in the time it would take to build a pyramid. And what the hell's the matter with your house's remains, as well as your own, just disintegrating into nothing? Don't inflict your tastes on everyone else. Yeah! That's just a rant for you. Anyway, a dig is currently underway on the British Columbia island of Triquette, where charcoal from an ancient hearth has been dated to 14,000 years ago. What's more, the tools associated with this dig, a hand drill for fire making, an atlatl, you know, which is like a spear flinger, and fish hooks suggest this was an established camp and not the site of a far-flung wanderer. Another exciting point is that there was a lot of ice on the North American continent 14,000 years ago, which is why there's been a generally accepted theory that the first peoples in North America got here by a land bridge that connected what is now Siberia to Alaska only about 12,500 years ago. However, recent finds, some of which we've discussed here on the Week in Review, like the hunting site at Cooper's Ferry, Idaho, which inexplicably had a point that matched points in Japan, a spear tip and a mammoth bone on the Washington coast that was found in 1977, and this site in Triquette upset that theory. These sites are all much older. They suggest that people got here earlier and by sea. And by sea, we're sure as heck aren't talking Christopher Columbus either. That dude was great at getting headlines, but way, way too late on the North America game 
and let's face it, was a pretty damn poor player at that. The location of Draquette Island, about 150 miles northwest of Vancouver, is an important site for the Heltsuck Nation, as the timing fits the narrative of their oral history and may help them in negotiations of territorial rights with the Canadian government. It's not going to be hard to argue who got there first. Another thing I like to think about when contemplating the diaspora of peoples from this time, their tools, their abilities, their inabilities, and the big question of why did they feel like pushing themselves to a new continent. Pick just one issue that causes people to move. Population density. Too many people putting too much pressure on the resources of the area. Well, here's some fun numbers for you. The Earth had possibly as few as 4 million people 12,000 years ago. That's roughly 49 million miles squared per million people. Right now, Los Angeles, California, roughly has 4 million residents spread out over just 500 square miles. Let's say, just for fun, you were traveling with a family unit of 11 individuals. 12,000 years ago, you could have had roughly 4.5 million miles squared per 11-person family group. Of course, some of these completely made-up familial home ranges would have been completely uninhabitable because they were either covered in ice or water. But, hey, you know, space is space. Look at all this more space. So much aerobics in here. So many activities. Next up. At the Anthropology Desk, the ancient Nazca Lines. The famous yet mysterious Nazca Lines are a series of over 300 geoglyphs in Peru. A geoglyph is a design or motif made out of rocks or something permanent. Scientists recently discovered a new one in the Peruvian desert of a cat, which, as far as outdoor cats go, is about as good as you can get. (coughs) Moving on to the Crime Desk... In what is the biggest poaching case in Nebraska state history, as of this recording, over 100 people from 21 states have been linked to one outfitter for their involvement in wildlife crime. Crimes including illegal baiting, out of season, illegal means of take, the shooting of non-game animals, tag fraud, violations of the Lacey Act, and so much more. So far, and we do mean so far as the process is ongoing, 30 people have pled guilty and have been ordered to pay a collective total of $570,453 in fines and restitution. The co-owner and chief operator of Hidden Hills Outfitters was sentenced to 30 months in federal prison and ordered to pay $214,375 in restitution to the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission. He will not be allowed to hunt, trap, or engage in any related business for 15 years after his release as part of the plea agreement. The investigation was a joint effort by Nebraska Game and Parks officers and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Together, they uncovered a minimum of 97 animals that were transported over state lines, including 34 mule deer, 30 white-tailed deer, 27 turkeys, and 6 antelope. Hunters are cheering as wildlife crime can so often fail to get the full attention of the courts. This five-year investigation started with a tip from an unnamed concerned citizen. One phone call, well done, Nebraska Game and Parks. If you want more on this story, you can get it at TheMeatEater.com from that well-writ Kristen Schmidt.
sticking with the crime beat, we'll call this one The Buck Stops Here, and this one may have you looking twice at Forked Horn Bucks this season. Just last week, a Colorado woman was gored in the stomach by a neighborhood mule deer buck while walking her dog. She sustained cuts to her head, arms, and legs and was hospitalized. The 73-year-old, who allegedly raised a days-old fawn in her home, has been cited and fined $1,000 for illegally raising and feeding wildlife. The investigating Colorado Parks and Wildlife officer was reportedly approached by the buck who now had the victim's blood on its antlers. The officer killed the habituated buck. A necropsy of the animal determined it had been eating unnatural foods. Just another reason to not feed wildlife. They will attempt to kill your neighbors. And maybe stay off the unnatural foods. That's all I've got for you this week. Thanks so much for listening. As per usual, let me know how I'm doing, and most importantly, what is happening in your neck of the woods by writing in to A-S-K-C-A-L at TheMeatEater.com. That's AskCal at TheMeatEater.com. Thanks again. I'll talk to you next week. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance Axis deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis deer sticks, sent right to your door visit mauinuivenison.com that's m-a-u-i-n-u-i venison.com and use promo code cal for 20 percent off your first order